0: You've got questions, we've got answers. Phone lines are open.
1: Welcome, friends, to the Line of Fire
0: broadcast. Michael Brown, delighted to be with you. You've got questions, we've got answers. It's Friday, we are live in studio. Here's the number to call 866 truth 866 348 7884. As long as your question is appropriate for Christian radio, as long as it's something you can ask on the air and it relates to something we've talked about on the Line of Fire broadcast, by all means, give us a call. If you differ with me on certain things, if you want to challenge a certain point, happy to have the discussion. 866-348-7884. The earlier you call, the better chance we have of answering your call on the air. Also, a shout out to everyone in the greater Charlotte, North Carolina area. If you're free tonight or tomorrow night or Sunday morning, Join us for our 20th annual Missions Conference. Yeah, By God's grace, out of the Brownsville Revival, we birthed Brownsville Revival School of Ministry, which then became Fire School of Ministry. And by God's grace, out of the School of Ministry, missionaries have been sent all around the world to many nations. Some have been on the field 20 years now, remarkably, sacrificially, doing amazing work for the kingdom, seeing so many coming to faith, disciples being made, Uh, some of our workers in China, very difficult situations there that they're in the midst of, some of our spiritual family there serving sacrificially and working for the gospel, they've seen multiple generations of converts. In other words, they've led people to the Lord, who've led people to the Lord, who've led people to the Lord, who've led people to the Lord. Lord. Uh, I may have mentioned this a few weeks ago, but talking to uh, one couple that serves there, and they were saying they just met someone who's a seventh-generation convert— so they led someone to the Lord who led someone. So seven generations down, uh, some have literally, literally, not exaggeratedly, but literally reached millions, and, and others working behind the scenes in areas that you don't see a lot happening, but they've been sowing seed, they've been pouring their lives out. That's the ongoing fruit of the gospel. It is, it is so silly and unfortunate when people say, well, how could that be God when that person was shaking, as if shaking or not shaking is a proof of anything? Where in the Bible does it say, well, you know it's the Holy Spirit because the person's shaking. Well, you know it can't be the Holy Spirit because the person's shaking. The Bible says no such thing. And the Bible is our God. Uh, the Bible is our guide. Jonathan Edwards said we ought not to, to go beyond Scripture. Right? We ought not to limit God where he had not limited himself. So if the Scripture says, here's how you judge something, here's how you test something, well, then you go by that. And if the Scripture doesn't say, here's how you judge something, here's how you test something, then you don't use that. So whether someone shakes or not is not the criterion to test whether it's the Spirit. It's what happens in the person's life. Are you a true convert? Are you a true disciple? What kind of fruit are you bearing? Do your doctrines line up with the Word of God? That's how you test Someone can shake all over. It doesn't mean it's the Holy Spirit. They could be shaking because they're cold. They could be shaking because they're sick and have a fever. They could be shaking because they have a disease. They could be shaking because they're weird. They could be shaking because they saw someone else shaking. They could be shaking because they're under demonic power, shaking because they're under conviction of sin, shaking because they're under the Spirit's power. That in itself proves nothing. What we're looking for is lasting fruit in the lives of people transformed through the preaching of the gospel. That's what you judge by. So if you're anywhere near the area, Fire Church, just look up fire-church.org and visit us uh, for the meetings tonight, beginning at 7, tomorrow beginning at 6, and Sunday morning beginning at 10. You will be blessed and encouraged by the testimonies of these missionaries. All right, we will go to the phone starting in Shreveport, Louisiana. Russell, welcome to the Line of Fire.
2: Thanks for having me. You bet. So I had a question concerning 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 through
0: 12. Mm-hmm. Sure.
2: My question was, I grew up in the Fundamental Independent Baptist Church, and we've been taught that this is speaking to the effect that once the Bible, in the uh, once we had the completed Word of God, that the things that were in part were going to be done away. Yep. And I, I understand that you're... Kind of from a different mindset, I was wondering if you could kind of elaborate as to how you would interpret those, Yeah, uh, that
0: tri- yeah, thank you for asking, sir. And I mean no insult by saying it's, it's a very bizarre interpretation that's been virtually unknown, almost entirely unknown through all of church history, until uh, there was a rise in anti-Pencostal interpretation last century. Otherwise, it's virtually completely unknown because the context is clearly talking about the second coming of Jesus, not the completing of, of the canon of Scripture. So what, what Paul says, verse 8, love never ends, but as for prophecies, they'll come to an end. As for languages or tongues, they'll cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. We still know in part. The fact that you and I are having this discussion means that we know in part. It means that one of us has limited knowledge or understanding, or both of us do, but the fact you have doctrinal disagreements, the fact that, that teachers are trying to argue this is a better understanding of this, we still know in part. We're still in that stage. Yes, we have the complete Bible, but we are still on this side of the return of Jesus. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. So what's he saying? When I was a child, I spoke like a child, thought like a child, reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now... We see indistinctly as in a mirror, but then face to face. We don't see the Lord face to face right now. We walk by faith. We're not seeing him face to face. We're walking by faith and trusting him. When he returns, we'll see him face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. We don't fully and perfectly and completely know God as we will on that day when when he returns. Now these things remain, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. And then based on that, he starts the next chapter by saying, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts above all that you may prophesy. And when you keep reading through 1 Corinthians 14, so this is what follows immediately. This is what what Paul teaches. He says this, Therefore, my brothers, verse 39, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in other tongues, but everything must be done decently and in order. So that's the instruction that the Word of God gives us. That's what we are left with. And there's nowhere in Scripture that changes that. In other words, if if that's what the Word says, don't forbid speaking in tongues and eagerly seek to prophesy, then there has to be something else in the Word that says, stop that now. Don't do that any longer. But we don't find that. We find in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says, don't despise prophecy, test everything, hold fast to that which is good don't put out the Spirit's fire. So there's further encouragement to see the manifestation of the gifts. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says that you are not falling behind any gift as you eagerly await the return of Jesus. So these things continue until he returns. Plus, we know after the last books of the Bible were written, there were still miracles happening in the early church for centuries. Demons being cast out, people being healed, the dead being raised. In the 4th century, going into the 5th century, Augustine didn't believe in divine healing for today and the gifts for today until they documented more than 70 miracles in two years, including people being raised from the dead. And he said, hey, my theology was wrong. So God's continued to move all these years. And, and you'll, you'll hardly find any serious commentator today that interprets that saying when the Bible, when the canon is complete. And, this, and that was the last thing in Paul's mind in writing it. He's writing about seeing the Lord face to face and we have these things until that time. So uh, that's how I would answer it. And if you have a follow-up question, feel free to go ahead.
2: Yeah, um, because the reason why I'm asking is because I'm asked this. I'm a pastor of a church, and we, we're the Southern Baptist. Yeah. And I'm asked about this passage quite often. Yeah. And I just wanted to get a different point of view. Now, my follow-up question would be, when I was younger, I was taught that when it says when we now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face, they would cross-reference James chapter one, where it refers to the word of God as a as a mirror or as a mm-hmm. glass. Yeah, and and they would. But try but, to, but
0: but who do you see in that mirror? You see yourself. You don't see the Lord face to face, right? You see the you see I yourself. You. Yeah. Yeah, so, so here's the question. Do we still know in part, or do we have perfect knowledge? We still know in part. Do we see the Lord face to face? No. And my, the, my bigger issue is when Paul, in this next chapter, says, so what remains? Faith, hope, love, grace, Jesus, love. Now, based on love, pursue love and pursue the gifts. And then he says explicitly, don't forbid speaking in tongues and eagerly seek to prophesy. Where? does the Bible tell us that's no longer for today? That stopped. In other words, if I have a command in Scripture, do this, right? You go into all the world, make right. disciples. And I need something in the Bible to tell me, by the way, that was only for like the first generation, or you ever witnessed to a Jehovah's Witness and you quote Scripture to them, and this is written that you may oh. know that you have eternal life, and they say, no, 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 that was just for the 144,000? You say, where, where, where does it say that? It's the same kind of thing here. We're not Mormons with an extra book, the Book of Mormon, that tells us something. We don't believe in prophetic revelation that can override Scripture. So if Paul left us a directive in several different places, who changed that? That's my problem. Like, who's meddling with the word? If we agree this is God's <laughs> word, don't we follow it, right?
2: Right.
0: Hey, d- sir, do you have I my book? It. Do you have my book, Authentic Fire?
2: No, sir, I don't.
0: All right, I, I want to send it to you as a gift. All right, I, I wrote it in response to John MacArthur's Strange Fire. You'll see I wrote it with respect and grace. But there's a chapter in there called Solo Scriptura, and therefore charismatic. All right, so I, I'd love for you to take a read. Right. So stay right there, Pastor. And uh, Danny's going to get your contact info, and we'll send you a copy of Authentic Fire, my gift to you. Hey, Patrick, thank you for your gift on YouTube. Much appreciated. Uh, let's go to Houston, Texas, IO. Welcome to the line of fire.
3: Hi, Doctor Brown. How are you doing?
0: Very well, thank you.
3: Excellent, excellent. I enjoy your show and I absolutely love your book on hypergrace. And um I've got a question about what it means to believe in to have belief in Christ. How did the original Jew understand uh what it is to believe? I've been hearing different pastors saying To believe in Christ means to obey Christ, uh, versus to believe in Christ means to believe that He is the Son of God and He came and He died, and that's what gets you saved. What's the difference between both? Because I'm having a hard time understanding the fact that okay, we believe in Christ that He's the Son of God, we get saved, but then we have to maintain our salvation through obedience.
0: Got it. All right, let me let me respond to that, sir, on the other side of the break. And thank you for the kind words. We'll be right back. Phone lines are open, 866-348-7884.
1: Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown.
0: Thanks, friends, for joining us on the line of fire, 866-34-TRUTH. So, Ayo, back to your question about what it means to believe in Jesus. First, there is no notion that would have been in an ancient Jew's mind that it was simply some type of intellectual assent that it was simply acknowledging a concept and, and saying, okay, I, I intellectually affirm that to be true. Uh, faith is a matter of trust. Faith is a matter of dependence. Faith is, is a matter of throwing yourself upon someone for, for mercy and grace and help. And, and it would be pretty much like this. There's a, you're in a burning building, and there's, there's a, a rope that's dangled down uh, in front of you, A fire truck has got, you know, a ladder way up there, and there's a rope that's dangled out to you, and it's just, you got to just trust us, man. Just jump out and grab hold of that rope. I don't know if it's going to sustain me. I mean, you're literally trusting what the fireman's saying and the integrity of that rope. You're throwing, you're not just saying, well, intellectually, I believe that that rope has the capability to carry my body weight. No, rather, you're throwing yourself on it. It is a complete putting one's trust in to do a particular thing. In this case, we are putting our trust in Jesus to save us from our sins, to forgive us, and to bring us into right relationship with God. That cannot be done without a heart of obedience. In other words, you cannot say, God, save me from my sins and make me your child, if your intent is just to continue in sin. So a saved life is a changed life. It's not perfectly changed. We're still in this world, and and we're, we're growing every day in the Lord. But in point of fact, it is a a trust to save us from our sins and to bring us into the family of God. That's why Paul says if you confess Jesus as Lord uh, with your mouth, believe in your heart, he's raised from the dead, you'll be saved. So it's not just saying I intellectually affirm his lordship. It's saying, God, I'm submitting, save me. I want to serve you. I want to live for you. Forgive me, save me, cleanse me. If I, at some point in my life, refuse that lordship, and determine I'm going to walk away from God or deny him, I would rather have my sin than the Savior, and I choose to walk away from him, yes, I can forfeit the grace of God, but I don't keep my salvation by obedience. I'm saved by the grace of God and kept by the grace of God. If I willfully reject that grace, willfully say, God, I am not going to follow you. I'm choosing my path of sin and refuse to repent, then either I was never really saved or I forfeited my salvation. So I'm not saved by grace and kept by works. I'm saved by grace and kept by grace. But the same way we enter into that grace by faith and crying out to God, we can turn away from that grace by unbelief, rebellion, and denial. So that would be my simplest, most concise way of explaining it.
3: Okay, all right, thank you because um I, I don't know, I, I was gonna ask you what's your what what's your take on uh Sodengard? So uh Sodengard? He's a guy from Denmark and he talks a lot about discipleship and about making disciples and um at times they felt that well Jesus said we should go make disciples and if you're not making disciples, uh you're disobeying Jesus and that means that um you're not obeying Jesus, which means you're not saved. Yeah, I, I don't know. Uh,
0: yeah, no. let me, yeah, let me just say this, because that's it's kind of a second question, and, and I, I do want to get to, uh, to other callers. I've, I spent a couple hours with Torben a, a few months back, and to my knowledge, he does not preach that. If someone can correct me on that, that's great, but to my knowledge, he does not preach that if you are not engaged in the Great Commission, you're not saved. But all of us on one level or another, either praying for the lost or seeking to be witnesses to the lost or seeking to live godly lives that can be a good example or giving or witnessing, all of us should have God's heart and want to see people come to faith. But how that's worked out in all of our lives is going to be very different depending on where we are and what our life calling and situation is. Hey, thank you, sir, for calling Eight six six three four truth Torben, by the way, is in the States and... Uh, 700 Club has aired a story about the battles that he's faced in Denmark and his hope to get citizenship here in America. All right, we go to Stephen in Tampa, Florida. Welcome to the Line of Fire.
4: Hey, Dr. Brown, how have you been?
0: Doing well, thanks. Having a great time meeting with our grads these days and looking forward to our missions conference this weekend.
4: Awesome. Hey, I got a question. Um, I've spoken to you before many times and uh, I've said I'm in seminary down here in Florida, and I'm in a lot of theology classes right now. And right now I'm in a theology of salvation. And our first class, uh, we've been talking about the end of Romans 7, and the beginning of Romans 8, the first verse. Yeah. And uh, we listened to a commentary by John Piper, and he said in his dialogue that, there is theologians who believe Paul did not write the end of Romans 7, leading into Romans 8, 1. He didn't drop any names, but I wanted to get your uh, take on that, if you've heard that before. and um, Because I don't see how somebody could come up with that conclusion, because it seems like Paul is talking about himself, my inner being's I, I, I is repeated. Numerously through that, leading in the Romans eight, and I don't see how somebody could say that's not Paul,
0: right? So it, it would be the argument would be that uh, someone inserted the words as if it was Paul, all right? Uh, but as as I'm just uh, looking at um, some information here, there there is no strong textual argument that can be raised against Romans 7.25 being original. And that's why you'll find it in uh, Byzantine and Alexandrian texts. So you'll find it in texts that, say, the King James would follow or texts that the ESV would follow. And whatever John Piper was was saying is not making an argument that you can, by textual evidence, say that Paul clearly didn't say this. It would just be, was it someone else inserting it as if they were Paul? In other words, a later editor inserted this to try Mm -hmm. to, to work something out or make it sound better. But take it as God's word. Take it as part of the original writing there of Paul and wrestle with exactly what he was saying. There are different ways of reading Romans 7. Remember, it's inserted between Romans 6 and 8. So whatever we do, let's keep reading. Because in Romans 6, we, we see that we've died to sin. Paul says, how can you live it in, 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 in it any longer? Consider yourselves dead to sin, alive to God. You're not under the law, you're under grace. In the 8th chapter, he talks about life in the Spirit. If you live in the flesh, you'll die. If by the Spirit you crucify the deeds of the body, you'll live. And, and talks about how we are led by the Spirit, which first and fundamentally is to say no to the flesh and yes to God. So Romans 6 and 8 are glorious chapters about overcoming sin and life in the Spirit. Some read Romans 7 as saying, oh, okay, in the midst of this, the fact is our general pattern is the things we want to do, we we don't do. The things we don't want to do, we do. And we're kind of wretched, but thank God for grace and mercy because he doesn't see us in our wretchedness. That's how some read it. Others read it in terms of Paul describing his life under the law, that this is what he went through under the law. And it's utterly wretched. And the the good news is, praise God for grace, because that grace changes us. And by grace, Romans 8, 4, we can now obey the righteous requirements of the law. Another yeah, variation, I, and another variation is to read it as just Paul is describing life under the law. So when a believer falls into legalism, that's their experience. But certainly... I agree. Yeah, go ahead. I, I
4: was going to say, I totally agree with that perspective, because I believe at the end of Romans 7... I'm not, I don't have my Bible with me right now, but he talks about the the struggle of the law of sin against the grace of God in his life. But he says, thanks be to God. So he, there's a shift in acknowledgment that he said that I have this internal law of sin when I work in my flesh, but in my mind I have... I. I acknowledge the grace of god and i have this internal conflict and i totally agree with that perspective
0: yeah and and again it's con- it's it's controversial and there's even a, a division in the ancient church between east and west in terms of how the passage was was read in my book going sin no more i have an appendix just dealing with romans 7 and i start off by saying hey i know some of you went here before you read the book i was waiting for you you know Uh, But the key (laughs) thing is, whatever conclusion you come to in Romans 7, keep reading into Romans 8. That's what you have to do, and don't negate Romans 6. So Romans 8 starts with, therefore, there is no condemnation for those in Messiah Jesus because the law of the spirit of life in Messiah Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So what the law could not do since it was limited by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in flesh like ours under sin's domain and as a sin offering in order that the law's requirements would be accomplished in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So in ourselves, we will fall short. In ourselves, we are slaves to sin. And under the law, our sin is highlighted. Under the law, don't covet just makes me want to covet and, and, and shows me how covetous I am. But thank God we've died to that, And we are now renewed by grace. God forgives us based on what the Messiah did and gives us a new nature so that by his grace, we can overcome and lead godly lives. Now, there's always the aspect of recognizing that we fall short of God's perfection. So on a certain level, we can relate to, I want to do this and don't. I don't want to do this and do. But the overall pattern of our lives is not that. The overall pattern of our lives is we're not living the way we used to live. We're not living for the devil. We're not living for the world. We're not living for the flesh. We're, we're not out partying and carousing and, and raping and pillaging and doing all kinds of crazy things. We're seeking to honor the Lord. We're in the Word. We're praying. We're, we're worshiping with other believers. We're trying to raise our families in godly ways. We're not who we used to be because of the grace of God. So whatever you do in Romans 7, keep reading into Romans 8 and then go back and reread Romans 6. Thank you, sir. For the call, enjoy your seminary studies. Hey, friends, if we are a blessing to you, stand with us. Help us reach more and more people more and more effectively. Just $10 or more per month, you can be a Patreon partner, plus get two bonus videos each week. So go to patreon.com forward slash ASKDR Brown. Patreon.com forward slash Ask Dr. Brown. We'll be right back.
1: It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown.
0: Welcome, friends, to The Line of Fire broadcast, Michael Brown. My great joy to be with you. My great joy to answer your questions as best as we can. 866-348-7884. Let us go to San Diego. Angela, welcome to The Line of Fire.
5: Hi, Dr. Brown. Hello. Hi. Um, my question is, uh, it's kind of weird, but what is God's gender, and how would you respond to someone who claims the reason Jesus came as a man is because if God came as a woman, no one would listen or believe in him? This is uh-huh. actually a question I encountered in college, and I really didn't know how to respond. Thank you right. so much.
0: Yeah, it's a great question, and, and that's an interesting one you got at college. Yeah, so first thing, God does not have gender in that he is not a sexual being the way we are, right? So in terms of gender mm-hmm. slash biological sex, God transcends that. That's number one. Number two, according to Genesis 1:26 and 27, we're created in his image as male and female. So all that is in maleness and all that is in femaleness in terms of distinctives and characteristics and differences are found in God. So he, number one, transcends gender, but then within him would be aspects of being male and being female. That's the second thing. The third thing is that God does reveal himself as male. In other words, he is a man of war. He is our heavenly father. The pronouns associated with the deity are masculine pronouns. The verbal forms associated with the deity are masculine. So that is simply how he reveals himself. But we understand that he transcends gender and that within him are the essential aspects of being male and being female. As to coming into the world... If he came into the world as a woman, one it would have been contrary to the way he revealed himself the rest of the time, right, As our father. So if he came in, if, if we pray to our heavenly father and then he came into the world as, as a woman, that would throw things. He, he wants us somehow to know him as a father, because the father is, is the source, the originator of things, and we are to relate to him as a father. That's important. If he came into the world as a woman, could he have been the world leader, Now, that wouldn't have worked either in terms of many cultures. He would not have been able to do that. The other thing is Jesus was undoing what Adam did. So Adam, the progenitor of the human race, the first one created by God, that's the first Adam. Jesus is the last Adam. So that's the other reason he had to come as a man to undo what the first Adam did. So there's a bit of a cultural truth to it that it would have been harder to, to listen to a a woman in the ancient world than a man especially in many parts of the world same to this day in certain parts of the world but that's not the, the only reason or the biggest reason that god did not come into the world as a woman that that would be quite quite down the list frankly all right
5: okay thank you so much
0: you are very welcome angela and and by the way remember friends if if i answer a question and and you're listening you don't have you're maybe you're driving you can't write things down Everything's posted on our YouTube channel. So moments after the show is over uh, on Ask Dr. Brown on YouTube, A-S-K-D-R-Brown on YouTube, you can listen to the show, watch the show, and then their podcast uh, and and our line of fire website, askdrbrown.org. So you can always go back and listen or watch to review what was shared. Um, Okay, let's go to Thomas in Trinidad. Thanks for holding and welcome to the line of fire.
6: Yes, good day, Dr. Brown. Good day. Um, my my question is pertaining to the Greek word that was penned uh, during the time of the Apostles. Um, the Greek word is found in Matthew 27, 42, and in and, and several other scriptures. And it is the word staros. Now, I don't know anything in Greek, so you may be able to help me. So this word, I know that though I don't know languages, I know that sometimes um, you can't just copy and paste and think, well, you can google the right meaning of a word. Right. So right. this word, tarot, at the time when the um, Machu, for instance, penned these words using this ancient um, language in conveying that exact thought in my mind, what would be the best word that would describe that word, staros. Is it cross, or is it something else like sikas? Because we're seeing uh, several meanings. Can you enlighten yeah, so, me in that?
0: Yeah, so the, the, the Greek word staros does have uh, several, several different potential meanings uh, because there were different methods of crucifixion. Uh, some have called it the execution stake. Some would translate it. It's, it's primarily translated as as cross, and it certainly included that. All right. So, for example, if if I'm just um, uh, if I'm just looking at at the the lexical evidence, right, uh, looking at the different dictionaries. Uh, so one uh, one says it's literally a cross, an instrument of capital punishment. Uh, most of the major ones that I'm looking at. Cross. In broader usage, it could be an upright pail or stake. So, in, in the ancient Greek world, the word had a broader meaning and it was an execution stake. Specifically, in New Testament usage, because it, it pointed to how Jesus was crucified and dying on the cross, it's proper to translate it as cross. I don't get hung up if someone suggests that it would be better to translate with execution stake. Uh, You know, Jehovah's Witnesses try to make a big point to that. There's really no big point to make, because evidence does point to to a a cross-like figure that Jesus was crucified on, or a T-type figure that he was crucified on. Uh, One Jewish translation, Messianic Jewish translation, translates with execution stake. But the vast majority translate with cross, and most of the Greek dictionaries for the New Testament will tell you cross is the most accurate word to use there. But it does, it does speak in the ancient world of several different types of, of ways that someone could be crucified. Execution stake, uh, single stake, cross-type stake, all of those are applicable. And that's why you see well, the vast because, majority uh, of translations translate with cross.
6: Because um, my, my reason is, one is that um, some of the major places that I examined said that during the fourth century the word tarot was changed in meaning. Um, so before it meant one piece of timber with and never having two pieces crossing at any angle. And the, during the fourth century then Yeah where, where did you get where did
0: you get that information, sir?
6: I I got that from um, Vine's dictionary was
0: one. And Vine oh, oh. said that, that it that changed in the fourth century, that it didn't originally mean cross. That was in Vine's.
6: Yes, the Vine.
0: Okay. Got it. Yeah, because I'm just looking at and, I mean uh, I've studied it, I've studied it in years past, but I'm just looking at a bunch of, of major lexicons, a bunch of major dictionaries, New Testament, and they're all saying that cross is the best way to, to render it.
6: Yeah, no, it may be the best today I, I I get that, but back then they may have had a different meaning towards them. that is what Vines was saying. The, the meaning of that word Saros, never meant two pieces of timber fortune at any angle. It never meant that.
0: Right but, so, but here's um, right, but here's here's the whole thing. here's the whole thing. since, since you did ask and you know languages are are in, in my in my field here. J- just to explain. When Jesus says you've got to take up your cross or carry your cross, okay, that would specifically be talking about the cross beam, okay, um, that you would carry on your shoulder that would then be nailed to, so you'd have the the, the the long cross and then the one going across it, so hence the T-shape. So that's the one you carry. You carry the cross beam on your shoulder to the place of execution. Sometimes you drag the whole thing, but always you carry the cross beam. But that, that meaning of cross is—, is would have the same meaning that we're using today, so I'm just saying that the, the idea that it meant something totally different than and it was not speaking of a t shaped crossing a changed in the fourth century. I would strongly question that, sir, based on my study and and my understanding of what the dictionaries say and these These are scholarly dictionaries by world's top Greek scholars, and if they're saying cross the, the cross is not just ta- cross is something crossed, okay it's not just talking about one thing alone. The cross beam you'd carry would then be attached, and that whole thing could also be known as the cross. But hey, sir, I appreciate the call. I'm just giving you the dictionary evidence as best as I know it. But to repeat, outside of New Testament usage in the larger ancient Greek world, the word could also simply mean an execution stake, just an upright stake. It could mean that as well. That's why I don't fuss over an argument about how to translate it. All right, thank you for the call. I appreciate it. Eight six six three four truth. We go to Charlotte, North Carolina. Paul, welcome to the Line of Fire.
5: Thank you very much.
0: You are um, very welcome.
5: I just want to just say thank you for just making yourself available, Doctor Brown, and I'm um, really a blessing to so many people. And I know that takes a lot of time, and, and uh, a lot of people are very grateful. So thanks. My joy. Um. So awesome. So I wanted to just ask. I have someone that I love and trust. And they've really kind of downplayed the importance of the Old Testament
0: mm-hmm.
5: and even even saying it's not needed uh, for study since we have the New Testament. Wow um, yeah, yeah, but but recently, I want to ask about that, but I want to ask ask also um recently I, I took part of a study on the the Old Testament covenants and how Jesus fulfills them, and recently, I feel like God gave me like a light bulb moment just about how like we we're co-heirs with Christ. And, like, we receive the rewards of the covenant, or the covenants. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how that works out. Um, I, I just feel like it's important to know what the terms are of the covenant, and, and even, like, what the rewards and benefits are. Um,
0: well, I know the, that the the only, Right, the only thing explain, is, right, there's there's a spiritual application of some of the physical, literal things of, of the Hebrew Bible. So So, for example... The, mm-hmm. the blood sacrifices of animals find their fulfillment in the once-for-all sacrifice of, of the Messiah. And the physical uh, temple, uh, whether there'll be a future physical temple or not, we become a spiritual temple. So uh, there were promises that God gave to physical Israel. For example, the, the promise of Sorry. the inheritance of the land to the Jewish people. That remains a promise to the Jewish people, but there's the promise of inheriting the whole world we're inheriting the universe through the Messiah. So there's expansion of certain of these things in different ways, but they don't negate from the, the fundamental nature of those to whom they were given. Okay. Um, I wanted to ask for resources- yeah, j- Just uh, stay there. I'll finish on the other side of the break. Thanks.
1: It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34Truth. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Uh,
0: by the way, just looked at a comment on Facebook. Hardy, Jonk, why are you pro-Dawhide laws? Where'd you get that from, Hardy? I'm pro-preaching Jesus to the nations taking the gospel of Jesus to the nations. I hope you're not listening to the lies that are being posted about me and the misinformation that's out there. I hope hope you're not doing that. Anyway, if you want to know what I believe about it, just on our channel, type in Noahide Laws or on our website, askdrbrown.org, type that in. It's like, oh, gosh. Anyway, okay, so um, Daniel, uh, excuse me, Paul in Charlotte, uh, a useful book on the unity of the Bible is by Daniel Fuller, F U L L E R, Daniel Fuller, called The Unity of the Bible, Unfolding God's Plan for Humanity. Uh, also, in my book, Hyper Grace, I have two whole chapters dealing with how terribly destructive and dangerous it is to say we don't need the Old Testament anymore. It is like building a two story house, and once you finish the second story, you knock out the first, the whole thing collapses. The new is built on the old. There are hundreds and hundreds of references, direct quotes, hundreds and hundreds through the New Testament based on the old. Jesus doesn't fulfill. Uh, excuse me, doesn't abolish the old. He fulfills. Paul says in First Corinthians 10, whatever was written beforehand, it's a warning for us, for, uh, Romans 15, that, that it's all for our benefit. So you, you cut that out. You cut out the foundation. You cut out the roots. You cut out so much of what God's revealed there that it's then built on in the New Testament. That's a very serious error that almost always leads to heresy on a serious level. But a useful book, The Unity of the Bible by Daniel Fuller, Unfolding God's Plan for Humanity. And then in my book, "Hyper Grace," I have a couple of chapters dealing with the very serious error of of saying we don't need the Old Testament. All right?
5: Okay. Awesome. Thank you
0: so much. Awesome. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. You bet. 866-34-TRUTH. Let us go over to India. Ronit, welcome to the line of fire.
7: Uh, good, uh, good day, sir, Michael Brown. It's really a privilege and an honor to speak to you, and your ministry has truly had a great impact even here when you're,
0: like in India. Thank you, sir. What part of India yeah, are you calling so, from? Basically. Where you are, where uh, are you in India? I'm calling from Bangalore. Bangalore, okay, wonderful. Uh, Many Christians Bangalore. in Bangalore,
7: yes. Yes. So, basically, my question is uh, surrounding the King James-only controversy. Yes. Yes. Uh, So, most of the debates and interactions that I've seen with uh, KJV-only advocates usually surround textual criticism, manuscripts, and things like that. But I also noticed, like, in a lot of these debates, the focus, uh, like uh, even like a person like Stephen Anderson, although they do use Greek here and there, Uh, in arguments. For them, their final authority is the English translation and not even the Greek. So in terms of uh, dealing with KJV advocates, I wanted to just get uh, your perspective that wouldn't it be more effective in dealing with the proof text that they use to justify that uh, God's worth are specifically preserved in the King James-only translation than dealing with manuscripts, since that's not even their final authority?
0: Yeah, it's problematic. It's very difficult to deal with a King James-only person, especially those that are fanatical, because there's no logic or reason. In other words, if I could show them, okay, the Hebrew says this, or the Greek says this, and yet the King James says this, they would, and it's clearly an error, they would say, well, no, there's an error in the Hebrew or an error in the Greek. So it's based on, yes, yes. Uh, on, on an insupportable anti-logic that says, this is my premise, and whatever you say to differ with that premise, I will dismiss. Uh, in point of fact, yes. there are things as simple as as um, in, in Hebrew, lotir tzach in the Ten Commandments, do not murder, which the King James translates with thou shalt not kill. And that is not the word for, for kill. Harag is kill. Ratzach is murder. and And sometimes it switches them. In other words, they're just language errors. You say, well, that's what it meant back then. You know, Well, well murder is also used in the King James, and it, it was just not the right translation there. It should have been murder. So what I'll often do, if I am dealing with one and just trying to, to puncture some of their false thinking, is I'll just say, okay, well, let's look yeah. at, at just the Hebrew, where we agree on the text. In other words, it's not a manuscript difference. Let's just agree on the Hebrew, and now let's look at this and let, let's look at the the error that's that's there and then show them one after another after another. And, the, and, and then also, you know, go to the, the preface of the King James translators. They would have revised it a hundred times by now. I mean, they were meticulous and they did a beautiful job in many ways. In some ways, you know, we've improved over the years. And if they had the manuscript evidence we have today and, and new English as we know it today, because it's shifted over the years, right? You know, words have shifted in meanings. They'd be yeah, the first yeah. to say, "Let's improve it. Let's let's get something in the language of the people." So, yeah, it's it's very indefensible. Um, it, I would try to start with things where we agree on the meaning. You know, or look the Greek word exousia, right? So, uh, is the word for mm-hmm. authority, which is distinguished from dunamis, power. So you have in Luke ten nineteen in the King James, "I've given you power over all the power of the enemy." Well, hang on. Those are two different words that in Greek that are now translated in a misleading way in in, in the King James. And, and look, I memorized probably four thousand verses out of the King James as as a new believer and read it through cover to cover about five times. So I have great respect and honor for the King James. But uh, King yeah. James, Luke ten nineteen, I give you power, Greek exousia to tread on serpents and scorpions, and overall the power, Greek dunamis, of the enemy. Well, there are two different words with two different meanings, translated the same way in the same verse. That's misleading, and it's not accurate. So I just point these things out, and if someone is actually thinking and willing to hear, then we can help them. Otherwise, you just walk away, because they're not, they're not dealing with things rationally, they're not dealing with things in, in a logical way where you can actually refute. It's like you show them, okay, 2 plus 2 is not 5, it's 4. They'll say, well, the, you, you don't understand yeah. the meaning of 4. 4 is actually 5, and it just becomes meaningless. You can't help people like that.
7: Uh, yeah, a lot of the hindrances often lie in certain proof texts which they misinterpret. For example, in 1995, Dr. White's interaction with Dr. Strauss and Strauss kept asking, uh, like, where are these words? Where are these words being preserved? And he kept taking uh, some verses from Psalms, which I don't exactly recollect. Uh, but a lot of the focus is on certain particular proof texts. So would it be effective in, like, debating on the proof text itself and proving that these texts do not suggest what you're implying?
0: Yes, that's that's a great strategy, sir, if someone will listen logically. In, in other words, if they're saying, well, the Word of God is perfectly preserved, and it's, it's like tried seven times in the fire, you know, Psalm 12, and it's perfectly preserved. Yeah, yeah, where, yeah. where is it? It's the King James. Okay, well, first thing, then you ask, well, where was it until the King James? And where is it in every other language on the planet that's not English? You know, where was it before the English language was spoken? Right? So ultimately, you have to go back to original yeah. manuscripts. And, and then the original manuscripts differ With the King James and the King James rendering, but to the extent that someone will actually engage in a logical discussion, by all means, but when the thing is so easily exploded—and by the way, I have no problem with someone saying King James is their favorite version. I would recommend not using that as your number one version for a number of reasons, but if that's what you grew up with and love, God bless you. Wonderful but it's the king james only thing that yes, yes. that is fanatical and, and seriously erroneous. So yeah, Ronit, if you can get people to actually listen, wonderful. Uh actually have but, and and if you can't get them to listen, maybe the others that are watching the debate, they can learn from it. Hey, uh maybe I'll meet you in India one day. Great talking to you. Thanks so much. No,
7: sure, thank you. God bless
0: you, Dr. God bless. And you know, we're we are on in, in Hindi and Tamil. Some of our shows on God TV are dubbed in Hindi and Tamil. Uh, let's see. Uh, Ike in California, thanks so much for a holding. Please dive right in with your question.
3: Hello?
0: Yes, hello. You're on the air.
6: Oh, thank you so much, Mike, uh, Dr. Brown. I, I really enjoy your shows. and uh, I'm a great supporter and uh, continue to do what you're doing. I'm really supporting what you're doing for the Lord.
0: Much appreciated. So, uh,
6: the question I have today is: uh, I do this um, on Saturday morning. We go out to share the gospel with people on the street.
0: Yeah.
6: Um, and we've been doing this for a while. And I just wanted to know what's your thoughts on sharing the gospel with minors? Like sometimes we meet minors, and I'm I'm actually a little bit on the edge because you know this is California, and you know how it is with this you know with the people on the edge here. I don't. I want to respect parents, but at the same time. You know, I understand, as the Bible says, hell is the real place. Jesus yeah. is in the end. Well, and I want to make sure people understand that.
0: What I would do my best and, to do, Ike, and just, just ethically, um, and by the way, I've, I've, I wanted to get your call before we're done. I've only got a minute, all right? So I apologize if I'm short, but thank you for the kind words and the support. Uh, in short, if I'm witnessing to... I, I would not, if if I was a Christian parent and there was there was a Muslim that was talking to kids in the area and and starts talking to my kid without me knowing it and trying to influence them to change their beliefs, I would obviously have a a problem with that. You know, his 7-year-old kid, and yeah, he keeps talking to me each week. So what I would do is if there's a child and they're interested... They want to, what is this, God, or I heard about Jesus, or or is there a hell, what, I heard about that, what is that, or do good people go to heaven, how do I go to heaven? Say, well, let's let's go get, do you live with your mommy or your daddy, let's go talk to them and see if they want to talk more, or if not, if they'll let you come to classes and, and get parental permission, just ethically, to keep reaching out. And if you have the opportunity to share with them and they're interested, say, okay, let's, let's pray. We can pray, but we want to talk to your mommy or your daddy. And then either get the parents' blessing to continue or bring the parents along. May the Lord bless you as you go.